I just want to encourage you, if you haven't got one already, uh, to make sure that you have one of these cards here, because this is your take home today. And if you haven't, uh, Dean Johnson, our head deacon out there, he can hand them out to you. Make sure you put your hands up, and if you need a pen as well, you'll need that, or a pencil, and he'll be able to help you out with that. But it should be inside your bulletin, if you didn't get one, or maybe you just picked up a card as well. Well, Happy New Year to everybody. That's good. Some of you thought it wasn't a good year so far. All right. I'll pray for you a little bit more. Um, it's good. Did anybody have the chance to watch the ball drop? Oh, two or three of you. Good, good. You did? That's good. Good. I'm glad you did. Uh, Wednesday night, they had a, a, a party, a youth, New Year's Eve youth party here that Pastor Jay put on. And uh, I said to Don Marsh afterwards, we arrived there, about 16 parents or so who were standing behind, waiting for their kids at midnight. I said to Don, I am so glad that I'm not a youth pastor anymore. That was just, I walked into the room and I was like, oh, that, that feels painful. <laughs> I'm glad I don't have to clean that up or that I had to even make it survive and that. But I'm so glad it was great. The kids had a great fun and it was great energy and a great way to bring the year in with prayer and lots of fun. And last week we celebrated communion as well, uh, which was a really wonderful experience. And I hope that not only did you take the pieces of paper away that you had, but you prayed for them, which is, as you can imagine, the journey has continued all week long. And as you heard at the very beginning when the choir sang the song, pray for us and pray for the people on the right and the left, that is what we're hoping the journey continues all the way through. And this is what we're trying to do here with our worship services, connect them from the week before and connect them to the week ahead as well. But I am glad that we finished that series. It was a good series, God With Us. Now we are starting a new series, Safety Nets. And there is a recalibrate question. This is the question that I'd like you to think about. And this is the question that comes up for the next few weeks. And it is this question here. Where is God calling you to be unsafe? Where is God calling you to be unsafe? When you think of your year ahead, where is God calling you to be unsafe? Which is a rather awkward question. Maybe not all of us want to ask that question as well. There is also a hashtag if you want to discuss it by social media, and you can use that with hashtag safety. So after worship today, just so that you're aware of this and the new routine and everything else, after worship today, we are encouraging you all to join us for a Bible study class. We have them for all ages, even for good-looking people. So you're welcome to join us for those. Um, and I just want to remind you, as we did last week, that we have a new one starting on this floor here, room 204, and Dennis Bartz and myself will be teaching this new class, Elemental Jesus. It's a, a study series by John Stott on who Jesus was as a teacher, as a leader, as a preacher, and I'd encourage you to come and join us as well if you'd like to do that. But it's just down here, room 204. Now, scripture reading. That was pretty intense, wasn't it? You guys read it this week? You read all of it all the way to verse 30? Matthew 11, 2 to 30 is packed with so much. Multiple stories are converging together, direct and indirect. But I hope you had a chance to rest in them and spend time with them and to see what God is actually telling you as well. John the Baptist is in prison. Uh, he sends one of his closest disciples, a group of them, to Jesus, and he asks this one question. Are you the one? Are you the one that we were supposed to be following? And I asked myself, really, is John asking that question? I mean, John knew Jesus, didn't he? You read about it. It says there that in the Bible that when Elizabeth was pregnant with John and Mary came with Jesus in her womb as well, that as soon as Jesus came in and Mary came into the room, while they're in the womb, John leapt in the womb. He knew Jesus was in the room, inside the womb. Did you get that? Room and womb sound very similar, but they are different. John the Baptist knew him. I mean, they were both miracle children, both with a divine call and both on a mission. When Jesus was getting ready to go into the wilderness 
and he went over to the river Jordan and he saw John John the Baptist. Did John the Baptist say, "Uh, who are you? Uh, Are you the one? Or did he say, behold the Lamb of God, declaring him to be the Messiah? He knew who he was. He knew who John Jesus was all the time. But there are days, and you know what those days are like, when you know that even what God has called you to is really hard still, something really difficult. And you need inside your life your friends and your family and your colleagues because they help to either build you up or maybe sometimes even to crush you. But sometimes, and we hope more than anything, they build you up. I mean, we all know the old adage, right? Behind every successful man is what? Is a proud wife, good, and a surprised mother-in-law. All right. Well, the same is even more true for what Jesus laid on John's heart. And John understood this ever so well, and it was difficult. And it's what Jesus lays on our heart as well that drives us. I mean, what keeps you up at night? What makes your heart race when you see it all coming together? What brings a smile or like a bubble of energy into your life when you think to yourself, this is what church or life is about? What makes you want to get out of bed and start another day and another year and another week and another month over and over again? John the Baptist nailed it. He knew what it was. He was called to prepare people for the Messiah. And he did not matter what he looked like what he smelled like, where he slept, how he behaved, because he was just about his cousin Jesus, who he knew was the Messiah. They're both miracle children. He was, as a result of miracles, so was Jesus, but Jesus was the one who was going to take the world into a totally new place. He spoke with such freedom that they arrested him. Well, Herod Antipas was the one who actually arrested him. Not the same Herod who hunted Jesus when Jesus was a little baby boy, but Herod's son, who grew up later on and became a king, He was the same Herod who was later to take Jesus and send him back to Pilate in the very final week. This guy, Herod, saw his brother Philip and said, I like your wife. So he took his wife and he had a bit of an incestuous relationship with his niece as well. So John the Baptist was all about repent and be baptized, kind of like the evangelists from the 1950s in all of Christianity were saying, repent and be baptized. That is what John the Baptist was. And he told Herod, repent and be baptized. And Herod said, Welcome to jail. Took him inside, threw him inside there, in one of the worst jails you could imagine. While down there, his disciples come to try and boost up John the Baptist a little bit, but they didn't, they dragged him down. They started to create doubts and said, oh, I don't know. Maybe he's not the one. I don't know. So they come to visit. And when they come to visit, how did Jesus respond to them? Through a series of direct and indirect statements. He said, yes. John the Baptist is the Elijah, which means, yes, Jesus is the Messiah, because John prepared the way. Yes, the kingdom of God is here, and yes, John was the greatest person that ever lived, and yes, Jesus loves him, and Jesus knows that he's going to die in prison, and yes, John the Baptist, you have a brave heart, and yes, all those who follow Jesus will be greater than even you, because they will too will have a grave heart. Let's pause right there for a second. I mean, just rewind for one second and just think to yourself what he's really saying to us. I'm going to read this text to you so it just comes in one more time. Matthew 11, if you have your Bibles, turn with me there or you can follow it on the screen. Truly, this is what Jesus says, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Everybody says, great. 
We love John. He's fantastic. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take force for it. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you're willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who is to come. He who has ears, let him hear, let him hear. It reminds me of a poem by Robert Frost, The Road Not Taken. Anybody ever read that? You guys know that? And this is what the, I'm going to read just the first and last verses of it because I think this is a really appropriate poem for us today. Two roads diverged in the yellow road, and sorry, I could not travel both. And being one traveler, long I stood and looked down one as far as I could to where it bent under the undergrowth. And then he says, I shall be telling this with a sigh. Somewhere ages and ages hence, two roads diverged in the wood, and I took the one less traveled by. And that has made all the difference. When it comes to following Jesus, the question we have to ask ourselves in 2015 and this day forward is this. How do we take the path of most resistance? It's not what we want to hear, right? Because we like to take the easy way out. That's what life is wiring us always for. I mean, you want to patch everything up. Nobody wants any conflict. Everybody wants to say, hey, good to see you. Cuddle. It's okay. Stab you in the back slowly. Pull it out gently. I mean, that's what we want to do. We just want to pretend there's nothing wrong with it. Even technology, Siri, and the Samsung TV, you know, with the LED, wants to tell you to talk to them about everything so you don't have to type anymore. Because you can just declare it. It's getting so, so simple. We are dumbing down everything. Gone are the days when you even use a pen to write anything. And even when you get into your car, right? Do you remember the days when you used to have to take a key and open the padlock to be able to get to your car? No? All right, maybe you remember the days when you had a key and you had to open the car with the key. Now you have the button where you just press the button, beep, the car opens. But today, some of you have those cars where you arrive and they say, we are opening for you. And the door just comes apart. You don't, and they say, they pick up a crane, he picks you up, and he puts you in the car. And then it says, let me drive you. I mean, that's what's happening. We want just the easy way out. And we're looking for the easy way out all the time. But Christianity does not do that. It says it's really hard. I mean, if Christianity was really, really easy, if it was really easy, everybody would be a Christian. But Jesus requires us to have a brave heart. A brave heart means action against all odds. It's really, really difficult. And it was in the early 1900s that a few preachers started to get together and they said, you know what, society's gone wrong. It's crazy. What we need to do is address the social ills inside our society, fix the poor people, help them become better, take care of the health, and they started to do this. Some of the evangelists at the time, the famous ones like Dwight Moody said, no, 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 no. Church is not about that. Church is about preaching repentance and be baptized, and it's just about spiritual matters. We should do that. The difficulty was that at the time, there was a socialism moving around in the world, and communism was taking foot, and World War I was taking up, and so people were pessimistic and depressed, and so the, the idea of the churches doing that kind of faded away a little bit. It wasn't until the 1960s when Martin Luther King Jr. actually put liberation theology together with this theology and said, look, we should change the world we live in. We have to be able to do that. But today, the tension is the same as always. Because we as Christians, we don't want to roll our sleeves up and do some stuff that gets us all dirty and messy. We just want Jesus to, instead of feeding the 5,000, just to go preach to them. 
I mean, if you had a crowd, why feed them? Just preach to them. That's fine. Tell them to come forward here and let's have them pray and let's have them ask for forgiveness. And if they kneel at the front of the pulpit here, everything will be fine and they'll all go back fine. A brave heart, though, has to be a resilient heart. A resilient heart is a difficult thing for us to have because resiliency is not something we all have. It's something that we are born with and something that you can train yourself to actually grow in. It's a quality that makes the difference between staying put or moving ahead, between stagnation or change, between failure or success, between past or future, between no or yes. In history, when you look at this and you've seen this, you know who are resilient people. You see that they get knocked down, but they get up again. They get knocked down, but they get up again. It's that kind of quality that Winston Churchill had at the beginning of World War II. When he said these words, these epic words, we shall go to the end and we shall fight in France, and we shall fight on the seas and oceans, and we shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in air, and we shall defend our island whatever the cost may be. And we shall fight on the beaches, and we shall fight on the landing grounds, and we shall fight in the fields and streets, and we shall fight in the hills, and we shall never surrender. There is something, though, about injustice and evil that cries out for us to have a brave heart like John the Baptist, to have a resilient heart like John the Baptist, that no matter what you get knocked down on, you're going to get up. So what does it look like? And this is where your cards come in really handy for you. What does it look like for us? If you pull your cards out and take your pens, you can write down for yourself just so that you can work through this this week until we meet next week as well. What does brave and resilient look like in your community? For me, every person is connected. We leave no one behind. Every person should have at least three friends in their life. Three friends is not that difficult. Three is quite comfortable. We can do that. Every family should have at least three families that they connect with. That's really good. Every elder in this church should take three by three by three, which makes 27 members. Every elder should have 27 members that they care about, that they know what's going on in their life. All the members should know who their elders are, that they can go to and say, you're my resource. You will help me be able to become a stronger person with the Word of God. You will help me to be able to deal with what's going on in my life. And if you can't, you will point me in the direction of somebody who can. That is what we should have. A resilient heart means that you kind of create the community that we exist and enjoy here every single Sabbath. Sabbath morning is our time to build our resiliency, to build a brave heart. It's the reason why so much effort goes into from the moment you walk into those doors or those doors at the back, at the back there, which is truly the front, which is truly the original entrance, which is where you should come in from. Ah. But these doors, the greeters want to not only just shake your hand, but they want to remember you. They want to know who you are. The refreshments table is not just a snack table. The refreshments table is a place for you to huddle together, to have some food, to connect, to build community together, because that's what it's all about. A brave heart also builds an undiluted faith. An undiluted faith. This is faith that is eager to be driven from the Bible. Now, I've got to tell you this. The Bible is not an easy book to study. All right? I can't just tell you, go ahead, just pick up the Bible and read it, and it's just straightforward. It doesn't work that way. Sometimes you get like some kind of insight in it, but it takes a lot of effort inside it. And there are methods and all sorts of ways to be able to do this. If everybody got it, we'd all be just like, ha, done, see you in heaven. We're all good. But forever, we're going to be learning inside there. And faith is complex. The problem is, is that we are entitled and we place ourselves above God with our time that we don't even use for God. We are better than him sometimes and we control our lives. But undiluted faith 
is 100% concentrate juice with the pulp, okay? It's not strained out, it's a little bit hard to swallow, but it's sweet and bitter and it builds resiliency inside you. It's like a really good perfume, the oil, not the eau de toilette, but one single drop of a perfume just permeates and fills this entire room and lasts for days on top of that. It brings joy to you and to others. When your faith is based on the Bible, it comes to life and it's so concentrated that you need to add water to it to share it with others. You with me? You have this concentrated faith because you know the source is always concentrated, it's always reliable, and it is the community of your life here. The final thing is that a resilient heart will always call you to lead. You can't be a bench warmer, waving for other games going on, saying, oh, go that way, do this, do this. You need to get inside the game to be able to change it. You can't say to yourself, hey, I'm going to control all of my debt, my personal debt, by doing online shopping. That's not going to help you. Getting a 0% credit card, that's not going to help you. You need to make a budget, and you need to make long-term and short-term goals. You need to lead by taking it responsibility. You can't fix your marriage by just thinking about it. You can't fix your marriage by buying gifts for each other. You can't fix your marriage by watching romantic movies and hoping the other person understands what's going on. You need to take time to engage in a conversation with each other. You need to lead in creating space. You also can't fix this church. And you can't just say, well, you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to pray for the church all the time. That's what I'm going to do. It'll be dandy that way. You can't drive here and not get involved here. You can't change it when you work against it. And you can't get involved in leadership and be part of a team unless your faith is coming from its source. Then you get to shape it. I have a heavy burden in my life. And it's a difficult responsibility that exists here. Because I look at you as a congregation and I think to myself, I've got to make sure that as best as I can, with all the knowledge that God has laid on me, with all the knowledge that we connect here together as a people, that I'm taking to a place where Jesus is going to be with you the entire step of the way. That's my responsibility. I look at myself and I say, hey, there's about... 450 people who come to this church once, twice, maybe three times, four times a month. You know, they vary between there. That's why the congregation changes, and that's why it's great to be able to meet people all the time. It's like a huge organization. The difficulty is that we are all a little bit siloed. We're a little bit segregated. We're divided. I want to create space inside this church for ownership for all. I want it to be kind of like I was at the Avista Hospital board meeting and, and heard there one of the reports where they were talking about how Avista, the employees say, this is a great place to work. It's a great place to work. I enjoy it. High satisfaction. That's what I want to experience in church here, without pay. I want you to experience great satisfaction in this church here by being involved without getting paid anything, without having a fortnight or monthly check, but just because you know what it is. To create a church like that means that we have to have brave hearts and resilient hearts, and it's going to take us all shaping it together. It will mean farewell to some, and it will mean welcome to some others. But if you're going to be as hairy and as crazy as John the Baptist, if you're going to be as brave as he is going to be, then I'm going to welcome you to this church to continue the journey with us. It means that God is going to call us to a few different things, and I want to encourage you when it comes to the safety net to try these three things with us, to remember these three things with us. Each day, there's a devotional that we're emailing out to you. I want you to read it every single day. Read it with your families, read it by yourself, read it with your friends, 
read it and interact and ask yourself those questions. Spend time with Jesus for the next 40 days. Those are pretty critical days for us. A lot of changes coming down. We need to be ready together. And God's going to take us down that place there. On February 8 and 9, nearly 40 of us are going to get together in San Diego for the one project. And on that Monday night, we're going to get together in a room. We're going to pray together. And we're going to talk about the future of this church. Imagine a blank slate. Nothing is sacred. Everything can be dreamed up and everything can be made the way that God has called us to be because we have to understand who we're reaching and who we're connecting to. And then two weeks later, all the elders and all the church board are going to get together. And I hope that you're writing to them and you're connecting to them and you're talking to them and they're going to dialogue about what this church should be and where we should actually go. It's time for us to generate a brave heart, right? To live love and to be able to say that God has called us to be this. So I'm going to invite you to stand with me right now. And there are going to be words on the screens. I'm going to ask you to read them with me because this is our commitment right here. We shall go out to the end and we shall wrestle in Boulder. We shall wrestle in our cities. We shall wrestle with growing confidence and growing strength in our homes. We shall defend our church, whatever the cost may be. We shall wrestle in our worship and we shall wrestle with our call. We shall wrestle in the mountains and in the community. We shall wrestle in our Bible classes and we shall never surrender. Jesus has given us a brave heart.